This morning's sermon is a challenge. It's called Be Holy. Again, continuing 1 Peter. I don't know about you, but holy is not my default setting. Thinking happy, good thoughts about other people, not judging, not being cranky when driving, dealing with difficult people at work, is not my default setting. My default setting is to be cranky when I think I should be, to be impatient, to be a little bit aggressive at times, to think negative thoughts about other people. Am I the only one? Or do we all tend to that? I think we all tend that way, don't we? That, that's, that's our natural tendency. So this morning's sermon is a challenge by its nature. It is called Be Holy. And I want to encourage you to know, I'll give you a heads up, it takes a choice. It's a decision. To be holy, you have to decide to be holy. So let's have a look what the scriptures say from 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hopes fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but as, you are as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Pretty blunt passage, isn't it? Doesn't mack around. The message is, be holy. Because God's holy and we should imitate him. First thing we need to do, as you can see in that, is prepare your mind for action. Preparing your mind for action means to desire to make a choice. Like I said before, my default setting is not to be holy. So if I want to be holy, I have to actually get my mind ready to be holy. I mean doing more than waking up and looking at myself in the mirror and saying each morning, you will be holy today, you will be nice, you'll be pleasant. And stamping my foot and saying, yes, I will. It takes more than that. We have to get our mind in that place where we desire to be holy, where we want to be holy, where our default setting is holy. I always like to use the, the idea of a pressure cooker. We have a pressure cooker at home, and when we're cooking, I love to give it a bump, because when you bump, the little nozzle on top goes, wobble, 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 and out comes steam. I believe we're a bit like pressure cookers. And we're filled with something, and there's pressure inside us. And when somebody bumps us, what comes out is what's inside us. So we need that what comes out to be the, the right steam, to be the holiness that comes out. So the first thing to do is to prepare your mind. Literally, it says to gird your loins. Isn't that a great picture? What it meant was they wore long robes, and having been out with Margot and she's wearing a long dress. Long dresses and long robes are not the best thing for running in. They're not the best things in for going to battle in. They're not the best things for working in. They get in the road. So to gird your loins means basically to bend down, to pull up the bottom of your garment and tuck it in so that you are freed for action. So the first thing it's saying to do is don't just stand there and think about it. Actually prepare yourself for a new way of thinking, to gird your loins and prepare. Romans 12.2 says, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The best way to prepare for obedience is to make sure that your mind is filled with the right stuff. So that when somebody bumps you, what come out, comes out is not anger, but grace. And to do that, your mind has to be filled with grace. And the best way to do that is to meditate on God's word and to contemplate what God's word says. To spend time praying and seeking God, making sure that what you put in is the right stuff. I love playing with computers. And I have discovered over the years that if you put rubbish in, you get rubbish out. I try and work on a little Raspberry Pi. And you have to get in the command line interface and type in little bash commands and all sorts of stuff. And I've discovered I'm a lousy typist. And when I miss that little space or that little dash or that I put a comma instead of a full stop, the thing just sits there and looks at me. Because when I put in rubbish, I get out rubbish. So what I want to encourage you today to know is that we have to be meditating on the word and filling our mind with the good stuff so that the good stuff can actually come out. So that you are filled and pure and ready for action. Next thing it says is to be self-controlled or fully sober. Lots of the versions don't just say sober, they say fully sober. What does it mean to be fully sober? Most of you know what people who have had a little bit too much to drink are like. What's the first thing that goes? Inhibitions? We've all been to the party where you've heard people talking and you think, without a few drinks, they would not have said that. Some of you may be in the situation where you think, boy, what did I say last night? Did I make a complete fool of myself? What happens is when we are not fully sober, we lose our inhibitions. And rather than making choices, we just do it. We just act. So to be fully sober in this means, not only have you girded your loins, you've made sure that you're acting intentionally. You're acting with choice. Most of us grew up, well, we all grew up, but as we grew up, what happened was our parents spoke into our lives and often we developed defaults from them. At times, I know over the years, I've said something to my kids and I've thought, gee, that's exactly what my father would have said. I can see a few nods. I'm not the only one. Or you might deal with somebody else and you think, that I haven't actually made a choice. I've actually acted. So what this scripture is saying is to move on from that and actually be that sober-minded person where you're not just being what you've heard in the past, but you're being what you want to be. I think it's a great way to live. It's, it's like living mindfully, living in the reality of who you want to be and who you are, not just what happens. I know it's good to model yourself on people, but it's good to get the right people to model yourself on. It's good to model yourself on what God would do, what Jesus would do, and to make that conscious choice.
Now, if we have a look now at another scripture, we're going to look at Romans 7, 18 to 20. I'm going to acknowledge up front, I find this a very hard scripture to read because you can almost hear in it that it's almost a blur in that Paul is just basically not writing a treatise, a treaty or anything. He's not writing anything. He's just speaking as to what his heart's thinking, what his mind's thinking. So it sort of comes out as a bit of a dump, which is why it's not so easy to read out loud. So here we go. We'll do our best. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Can you hear his passion in that? He wants to do the right thing, but he keeps on messing up. Anyone relate? I can relate really well to that. I, I mess up. I want to do the right thing, but for some reason, I don't. I reckon it's not only that we are totally incapable of always doing the right thing, it's also that times we forget to gird our loins. At times we, we, we lose our soberness. So we need to have self-control. How do you get self-control? How many of you can list for me the fruits of the Spirit? And one of them is self-control. Self-control actually comes from God. So if you want self-control, again, you go back and you seek God in his spirit and you allow God to work within you and he will bring self-control. Will you get perfectly? No, don't think so. Not till you go to heaven. Because we need to work on that self-control. We need to work with God. We need to yield to the spirit and allow him to actually acknowledge like Paul, to say to God, look, God, I don't do what I know I should do and I mess up. Help me. God, I'm not perfect. I need you and I need your spirit every day more and more. And it says for us to, in our passage, it says to do not conform to the old, but conform to the new, to be holy because God is holy. We need to then to choose to focus our mind on God and his grace. Because the way to be holy is to be focused on God and his grace. We must focus on God's holiness. You know what holiness is? It's got two things. It means separated, put apart because of the cleanliness. It also means pure. So separated because of purity. We need to hang on to the hope we have in Jesus, which is the theme to come. You'll see in the rest of the book. But we need to mirror that purity and to feel separated and set apart. How do you mirror something? First thing you have to do is you have to study it. Then you have to actually pay attention to it. Then you actually have to take it into your mind and think about it. And then you have to understand it enough to copy it. So to mirror God's grace, we have to be just that thinking, that doing, that thoughtful, that mindful person. Now moving to 1 Peter 1, 17 to 25. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you, are, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who, though you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seeds, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and the word is the good news that was preached to you. Just reinforces what's gone before. Peter is giving us some more information. It's interesting here that he speaks of the people as exiles. Now, they were exiles, but all Christians in many ways are exiles, aren't, aren't we? Because in many ways, the world, the country we live in, and its culture does not reflect our culture. At least I pray that it doesn't. The beliefs of this world and our beliefs are at odds. Always are, always will be. It's just the way things are. The way of the world and the way of the Christian should be different. So we are exiles. We need to be different. People need to look at you and think that person is a little bit odd. They don't really fit in to the culture around here. They have some weird beliefs. They don't always just fit in with what's, what's the word they use now, woke. They don't always just go along with the herd. They are a little bit other. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Because if you fit in with the world, as they used to say, if you walk like a turkey, talk like a turkey, smell like a turkey, and gobble like a turkey, what are you? A turkey. If we look like we're part of the world in every way, then we probably are. We need to be that little bit different. So, first of all, we need to know that to live in exile, there, there's some problems. And we need God's assurance. First, we need to know that God is a fair judge. And he's the best sort of fair judge, isn't he? He's a loving fair judge. He's not a cranky fair judge. He's not a vengeful judge if you can escape it. He is a loving, graceful judge. And as a fair judge, he's made some comments. And he's made some comments about his grace and how to earn it, hasn't he? And how do you earn it? By saying, I can't earn it. I accept you. So the first thing is, God's a fair judge. Often as foreign as you can feel judged and wronged, but the ultimately, no, we're not. We belong to the one who judges impartially. Next thing is, he tells us in this passage that salvation is imperishable. It's hard to understand what imperishable is, isn't it? As you get older, it gets a bit annoying 
I remember driving past a building not long ago that I thought was a lovely new building and they were pulling it down. When they built it, it looked like this great big solid iconic building that was going to be, you know, it was part of the landscape. But they've decided it's end of, end of life, so what are they doing? It? Knocking it down and building a new one. My idea of the stability and reality and the foundations I built my life on are often very, very perishable. When you're young, one of your foundations is your health. As you get older, not so good. One of your foundations when you're young is your ability to just go and do what you want to do and stay up late at night. When you get older, not so good. There's just so many things that we rely on that pass away. Even wealth. Even our relationships. Things change, things move on, and things can pass away. But what we hear in this passage is that one thing we know that will not fade is our salvation. One thing we know we can rely upon, the foundation to build your life upon is nothing more and nothing less than Jesus and his sacrifice. So if I ask you, what's the rock of your life? What are the things in your life from which you get your name and your meaning? For many people, it's their job. All those things, they do pass away. We need to get our identity, our knowledge, our truth, and our reality from Jesus, who's our rock. The next thing is, as exiles, it's very easy to feel alone, to feel nobody else is going through this problem. That I find the world a bit other. I'm sure there's nobody else around here that thinks like me. This passage tells us that we are entered a family when we became a Christian and that we have brothers and sisters. And I'll tell you what, a lot of them will find life very similar to we do. I remember the prophet when he said, there's no, no one else left, I'm the only one. And what did God have to show him? No, you're not. There are others. And we need to know that in life, when we are going through that hardest moment, when we are struggling with the, the sin and the things we don't want to do, when we are trying to be holy and failing, that we are not alone. That there are people we can talk to. There is support we can get. That there are people who, will put, who won't walk up to us and say, huh, you're that weak, are you? I beat that one years ago. No. There are people you can walk up to and say, look, I'm struggling, who will say, yeah, I can understand 100%. I have my own struggles. Let's encourage each other. Let's build each other up and I will listen. I can hear and I can understand. And that, I don't know about you, but I often find that really, really reassuring to know that there are people who understand. There are people who will listen. There are people who will come with me when I struggle and say, yeah, we're with you. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to put you down. We're not going to say, oh, boy, we're just going to be with you and move with you and love you. And the last one we see in this, the word of God endures forever. Forever is a very long time. I have no idea of forever. Like I said, I can understand hours, I can understand minutes, I can understand days, years, decades, half centuries. 
been there, done that, knows what it feels like. But forever is a totally different idea. But we need to know that while everything else will fail, God's word is forever and will not change, which is hugely encouraging. It's just solid. You can take it to the bank. If we look again at 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He was forsaken before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you. Isn't that fabulous? God decided before time that Jesus would come for you. It says in Genesis that the, that the heel of the son of the woman would crush the serpent's head. It was decided before time. That is incredibly encouraging because it means that God was not surprised when you sinned. God was not shocked when man fell. He knew before the whole thing started that it was going to happen and had plans in place to fix it. And those plans were plans of love and grace. Vernon McGee, a commentator, has a passage. This is not an exact quote. The words he says are like this. To put it very simply, the cross of Christ was not an ambulance sent to a wreck. When do you call for an ambulance? After the disasters happened. Jesus did not come as an ambulance because, because we crashed. And better get out there quick and do something. You know that, I don't know if you've all worked for that boss as well, the one who's always firefighting. There's, there's a, something happening over there. You go fix that. Something's happening. It wasn't like that. It was a plan. Christ was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world because God knew all the time that we would need a saviour. And he loved each one of us enough to provide that saviour. I need a God with a great big heart who provided redemption by his grace. And I can say amen to that. I need a God with a great big heart. And I need a God who has provided redemption by his grace. And not only is that what I need, but that is what I have. That is the God we have. So what this passage is telling us is... Be holy because I am holy, at which point my heart sinks a bit because I think I'm not going to make it. I'll give it a try, but I'm not going to get there. And then what do we hear next? That God is gracious, that God is permanent, God's word never changed, that God is there for us by his grace. So what are you? You are a sinner Saved by grace. What do you need? You need what God has already provided. And you should be encouraged, I pray, that God has provided that grace. He has provided that salvation and it's there for you. Our job is to embrace it, is to gird up our loins, to say, yes, God, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work with your spirit to be holy. God, I'm going to make a conscious choice to choose the right and proper way forward. And I'm only going to do it by your grace. God, I'm going to be self-controlled, and I need your spirit for that. 
because that's where that comes from. God, I'm going to be not like I was in the past. I'm going to be like I want to be in the future because your son died for me and in his blood, I'm a new creation. God, above all else, I want my mind filled with your grace, not with my foolish thoughts. I want to not go around in circles thinking stupid stuff. I want to go around in circles thinking about the wonders and glory of what you've done. I want that to be what my mind is filled with. And that is the way forward. So, I really like this book of 1 Peter because Peter doesn't mess around, does he? But as we saw when we looked at his character, what was he? Was he a, a, a diplomat? No, what was he a polite businessman and entrepreneur? No, he was a blunt fisherman. And when he wanted to say, be holy, what did he say? Be holy. And I can appreciate that because at times we need that message, don't we? We need not to be finessed and massaged and moved around. We need to be told. So Peter has told us this morning, be holy. And I pray that that word gets into our spirit and that we take the steps that are necessary to move down that path. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you do touch our hearts and our minds with your spirit. I just pray, Father, that you help us to gird our loins. You help us to make the choices we need to, to be sober of thought, controlled and ready to embrace the way you have us move forward, ready to embrace the way your spirit would lead us. And I pray, Father, for each and every person in this room that you may help us to be holy because you are holy. In Jesus' name.